It's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race, powered by Unibet Poker. I'm David Lappin. I'm sitting beside Darrow Kearney and locked away is Ian Simpson, who we let out at some point to tell us some news. Poker crowned a new world champion this week in Scott Bloomstein and a people's champion in John Hess. But while those guys were grinding through the gruelling 80-hour marathon that is the main event, our guest tonight, Patrick Leonard, was taking down a hat-trick of high-stakes poker tournaments in the Aria and Bellagio. Dara sits down with Diver Byrne to discuss that top boat versus quad hand between Vanessa Selfs and Gail Bauman at the World Series. And we also chat to our good friend, reigning Unibet DSO Malta champion, Dara Davey. But first... Staking. One of the things poker players, particularly young up-and-coming poker players, do is is seek out uh, a staker. They, they, they don't want to put their own money on the line. They might have a game that is a very good winning game, but maybe not a bankroll that can play those games. Uh, in that situation, bringing two people together with uh, an upside for both is a very sensible arrangement. Uh, Dara, you know, you and I did a bit of staking over the years. Um it's a it's an enjoyable experience because it, it's a bit of camaraderie with that person or that group of people. Um, we certainly got a lot of uh, enjoyment out of the coaching sessions and, and the stuff around the staking as well. We also, you know, made a little bit of money along the way and, and so did the guys we staked. Can you tell us about, you know, what the reason someone would choose to be staked from their point of view, first of all? Yeah, I think there's probably two two major reasons. I mean, if you, if, if you look at players of our generation, let's say, in terms of when we started at our age 10 years ago, the way a player traditionally made it as a pro, let's say, was they started out grinding uh, low stakes. They won enough money to, to, to move up in stakes and then eventually they moved up to a level where they were making enough money to, to, to actually make a living from it. It's a lot more difficult to do that these days because it's, it's, the, the edges are smaller. It's very, very difficult to, to build your role at the lower levels. Um, so, you know, if you're trying to build up your role at the same time at, you know, in one dollar seven goes or whatever, it could take you an eternity to actually move up even to ten dollars and and so on. So you you may never reach that point um, because it's a it's it's a more painstaking process. So now what a lot of young guys will do is they will prove that they're a winner in the smaller games and then they'll go to a backer and say, look, I obviously have the game. I'm beating these games by 20, 30, 40 percent. I could also be twenty dollar games, but I don't have the bankroll. So if you stake me, so you, if you have a guy who's a twenty percent ROI in a in a one dollar tournament, let's say, and he also has the same ROI in a twenty dollar tournament, he's going to be making only twenty cents in the in the one dollar tournament. He's going to make four dollars every time every time he plays a twenty dollar tournament. And even if he has to give half of that to his backer, it's still a much better situation for him, and he can make a decent living. The second aspect, I think, is that the backer will also provide you. But you you mentioned there the the coaching, for example, that we provided to the players that we backed, and you can. The, the the backers will provide more than just money. They'll provide um, coaching support, mental game support, all that sort of stuff, which players um, also need. You know, if you're in a downswing, it's very difficult to deal with that. And having people around you who are more experienced can help you through that. Similarly, uh, on the coaching front, player more experienced players, you can learn from them. So some of the players will actually develop as players while they're being staked as well. Yeah, I think they're really good points. And I, and I think something to remember, uh, which is very important in all this, is that we are human beings. Poker players are human beings and we're all susceptible to downswings. When you have a downswing, you might not make the greatest choices for yourself. If you're a stake player, however, some of those choices are taken out of your hand. Your backer is going to decide, you know what, you've had a bad run in that $50 average you know, buy and field over the last couple of months. But, you know, I'd like you to drop down to the $30 games till you get your mojo back, till you get your confidence back, because I can see it's affecting you. And, you know, inevitably, that's a really good decision for a poker player, but it's not necessarily one they'd make on their own. Yeah, that's that's key. And I mean, I talked about the way that poker players of our generation started and built up our roles, but I've also seen a lot of friends who went the other way. Their careers effectively ended because... You know, maybe they couldn't beat the level that they used to be able to beat, but rather than move down to the to the next level that they could still beat, they persisted too long. They ended up losing their bankroll. Whereas if they had a backer, the backer would presumably make the decision: look, you're losing too much of these stakes. You can't play these stakes anymore. Sometimes you need that decision to be taken out of your hands. And coming from the other perspective, uh, why did you want to stake in the first place? I know you've been doing it maybe five or six years now. You maybe bought pieces from time to time, more casually for one tournament here and there with people you, you thought were worth the, maybe you'd buy 10% of their action in an MTT or whatever it was. Um, but these more long-term staking deals, you, you got into them five or six years ago. Obviously, there's a financial reason. Was there any other reason? Um, well, the financial reason was the big reason because I thought I was going to make lots and lots of money, which didn't really work out. But... No, to be honest, uh, it, it kind of there were there were a number of factors involved. 
I was at a period where I was, you know, doing very well myself at a poker, but there was no sense of team spirit or being part of a group. So I felt that by staking other players, um, I could do that. It was also kind of the low point of the Irish economy. Um, you know, the Celtic Tiger had just collapsed. There was a lot of unemployment. And I remember that year, that was the year I spent uh, some time with my son in Vegas. And I expressed these concerns to him that, you know, I'm making a very good living from poker, but I'm not actually contributing anything to society other than, you know, providing for my family. And he suggested, well, you know, maybe you could help other people make a good living from poker too. And particularly at this time in Ireland when a lot of guys are are, are out of work. So the, the first player that I... Um, selected for staking was a young Irish guy who was, you know, he was making a somewhat decent living, but, but barely getting by. And I felt that by staking him, I could get him into the situation where maybe in two years time, he'd be making a very good living. I would have made a bit of money off him in the meantime. Um, and then he'd go off and doing his own thing. Yeah. There's a bit of talent spotting to it. And I get, you know, that's a bit of the, the fun of it too. You know, uh, there's a bit of a gambler in, I think all poker players and, you know, we gamble on ourselves from time to time. Gambling on your judgment is part of it. Gambling on your judgment of someone else's game is another part of it. Completely. Yeah. And when I was trying to decide who was going to be my first guinea pig or guinea horse or whatever you want to call him, uh, and I had a list of names and I showed these around to my friends and I said like, which of these guys would you pick? And I think almost without exception, they all, there were six names on the list and the guy that I picked was their number six. So I felt incredibly smug afterwards when he did really well um, and basically I felt like I'd proved them all wrong. Yeah, look, uh, I know there's a lot of stigma attached to, um, you know, guys being uh, being staked on a long-term deal. Uh, from time to time, people feel like, oh, you're working for the man. But, you know, I think as the years have gone by, that stigma has lessened and lessened. It was certainly a kind of a thing people viewed with scepticism in the early days. It's just part and parcel of the way poker works and how the whole economy of poker works these days. Completely, yeah. I think you know it used to be seen almost as a form of cowardice. Well, why aren't you playing on your own money if you are, are, are you not good enough? But the reality is that if somebody else is willing to invest in in you, that that shows um, a level of faith from that person. And just on a purely practical level, um, a lot of people you know don't have the bankroll to play bigger tournaments, so so they're going to get staked. You're not really an employee. You're still um, essentially an independent contractor, and you are still basically playing for your own money because you know. Uh, you only you only win if you make money. Yeah, look for anyone out there thinking of uh, becoming backed uh, because maybe they feel like they have the game. The best thing you can do is put together a couple of sample hand histories and send it off to the many firms out there. Uh, we had Jamie Berlin on the show there recently. Uh, he has a great company called Bear Hug. Uh, who, who like to stake young up-and-coming guys, uh, I think probably on the Euro sites, $20 to $50 kind of buy-in type of thing. There's plenty of them out there. You you, you can seek them out. Um, and, and even it goes all the way up. If you want to play higher and higher and higher and you have the game for that, you'll, you'll find somebody uh, on that front. From the other point of view, you know, be careful. You know, staking is not an easy thing. You do have to trust your judgment. It, it isn't the easiest thing in the world to, 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 to pick somebody who will be a good poker player. Uh, a lot of the time we're subject to a bit of confidence confirmation bias as we see someone maybe they're a bit hot running well in a couple of live mtts but if you can make some good judgment you can also make some good money from that side of the game we are joined now by two-time ukipt player of the season ukipt galway final tableist uh reigning unibet dso malta champion dara davy welcome back thank you very much i first met you years ago at a tournament in ireland and i remember there was a bunch of us sitting around at a break um, and you were kind of on the edge of the group, and I knew who you were, but I'd never spoken to you. So I said, "Okay, I'm going. This is this is the day I finally get to talk to Dara oh, Davy." No. And everybody was talking, and Dara was just kind of like nodding and shrugging, and then everybody went off. So I thought, "Okay, now I'll talk to him." So I turned around to talk to him, and you literally like turned your back and go like, "Buster, don't even think about talking to me." I was very very shy seven or eight years ago. I don't remember it being quite like that. I think I had just busted a tournament for. A ridiculous percentage of my bankroll and was pretty pissed off <laughs> so I probably wasn't the most friendly at the time yeah. but I I think you've manipulated that story I'm, I'm lovely <laughs> you're lovely now yeah but it was it was it was, it was certainly an interesting start to our relationship <laughs> yeah it could have had a better start I remember about a year later I decided to, I just took one of one of my mad notions like I do that I was going to start staking somebody so I was looking around Ireland okay who, who's the best person to stake and I'd always been obviously really impressed by you as a player at the table and also just your your, your general composure why but, I'm awful but your work I think as well like I remember you, you after you bust that big tournament the next day you were back right a side event um, and I, so I thought that was really impressive so I, so I decided to start staking you and um, 
You did. You started playing online, and I think it's fair to say initially it didn't go that well. Um, For three weeks, it didn't go very well, yeah. Dara. And you were, I mean, but you, you seemed far more worried than I was. So you sent me. I think some they hand- know where the story's going now. <laughs> you, you sent me some hand histories, and uh, I'm far too lazy to look at hand histories. So I sent them to David, who, 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 who I'd recently just met as well, and, and David had done some uh, coaching for for a sit and go group, and so I thought, okay, well he'll he'll, he'll know what to do. So I remember David like rang me late one night, and he goes, uh, "You need to stop staking this guy immediately." <laughs> He, he, he's absolutely Stop. terrible and I go he, he, yeah. he can't be that bad he's like one of the best young players he goes no no he's terrible you're burning your money you're going to lose all your money uh, yeah <laughs> yeah David clearly can pick his professional players out <laughs> very quick eight years later here we are five yeah, years later we, what we ended up doing as a compromise was rather than re- me just ringing you up and going you're shit you're dropped was I said okay we'll, get, we'll go around and have a chat with them so uh, you very kindly invited the two of us around to your uh, you were living in Ringsend at the time I think mm-hmm. so we we popped around and that may have been the first time you met David I think I met him once before but yeah it was either the first or second visit and the first one was literally two minutes hey how are you so mm-hmm. yeah it was my first proper chat with David yeah, and I think it's fair to say that David, he, he might have been, been impressed with your with your game at the time, but he was very impressed by your willingness to learn and take on new information. I think he was more impressed by my giving him coffee all night, and I think nice that coffee. saved me getting dropped, to be honest. <laughs> uh, it's just so funny, because I do remember that session, and I do remember seeing some things in your hand history that wasn't great that day, but when I think now, what, six, seven years later, how, how the roles are reversed, and how I just, like, pester Dara to come over and have coffee and to talk me through all the things I did wrong in my hands. I was, by my own admission, looking back, uh, a terrible tournament player. All my poker exposure had been in live cash games and a little bit of online cash. And even then, a lot of that was mixed games. So I think I was quite arrogant in thinking, oh, I, it's still holding poker. It's still exactly the same. But the reality being, I had no concept of short stack play. I would like to say after that meeting, I grinded Nash tables for months and got okay at that stuff pretty quick. One of your breakouts, or certainly, well, maybe your main breakout was that UKIPT uh, Galway final table that I mentioned at the at top of the interview. Uh, that was a pretty big tasty score I know you haven't had a score that size since so it was certainly a bit of a, a breakout one for you yep I more than doubled my role I think <laughs> in a weekend it was pretty huge um, but talk us through that like what how, how life-changing was that at the time uh, it was it's quite a funny I think that was in 2013 at the beginning of 2013 I said I retire from live tournaments because I was <laughs> so f- I'm f- I'm so fed up so miserable with constantly coming 15 for 20 for like 20 plus K scores for the win and just getting nowhere. And I'm just like, this is ridiculous. I'm just going back to live cash or online tournaments. And yeah, I don't remember when I quit that. I remember I didn't play a tournament for a while. So I think Colway wasn't that long till after my retirement. I think I'd gone to the World Series. And that was the, my first tournament. He sounds ages. like like Fedor Holtz, but just much much before him, he just decided retiring was the right thing to do, and he just came in as a recreational player and beasted up these big events. Apparently, yeah, and then ran good for a few months. <laughs> yeah, um, I think you, you you obviously got back the 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 enjoyment for live poker, and you and you really kicked on then because um, you you pretty much went to all the UK IPTs. You played every single side event. There was that one awful year where the three of us were in contention for the. Uh, UKIPT Player of the Year, so we felt obliged to play every single side event we could get into. You actually ended up winning that year. I think you picked um, Max Silver and Thomas Ra, yep. um, and you actually retained your title the next year. You were uh, UKIPT Player of the Year two years in a row. Was that a, an actual goal that you set, or was it just you were going you were going to play those tournaments anyway? After Galway, I think I went to the next stop. It might have been the Isle of Man. I don't really remember. It was or Nottingham or some UKIPT stop. And I think I had a result there too. And afterwards, I just seen on their website, there's this leaderboard. And, oh, I'm second on it or on top of it or something like that. And there's still 12 stops left. But I was like, oh, this is cool. And what's the prize? Oh, it's packages to all of next year. That's worth, like, over 10 grand. And yeah, I back in the day where there were, like, little sponsorship <laughs> add-ons like that, that was a great, to be fair, like, a good tip for tours. If you want to get people loyal to your live tour... Thrown in packages like that as a price. Pretty sure doing it. I might have paid several thousand euro in rake. As did Dara and I, and we didn't get anything back for it. So <laughs> just chasing it. Um, but yeah, I guess I kind of went for it then, and yeah, it, I became 
pretty obsessed and was multi-tabling side events at some points and it just got a bit silly uh, but was very lucky in the end the main thing was I ran very well in London which was the final monster three week stop I think I picked up five caches and that just put me out of sight and it was honestly I don't think there was anything particularly skillful Max Silvers and probably Thomas Ryer, both very good players and a lot better than I am, but I ran better than them. Something a lot of people ask, uh, Dara and I, and, and you of course as well, is uh, your association with the firm, uh, this kind of collective idea that we, we concocted in I think Dara's uh, dining room about seven or eight years ago, where we would sort of take mm. people on, stake them, keep everyone under a kind of an umbrella staking group, you know, talk hand histories, do coaching sessions, and uh, and then of course between you, me, and Dara, when we when we were all kind of that triumvirate, if you like, we would also you know share pieces as lots of people do as well. What was your experience of being in the firm with Dara and I? Probably a bit different, as I was the first person ever staked by Dara, so I guess I, I was actually the beginnings of it in terms of maybe because I think uh, you two kind of went into business a few months later after that. Um, the beginnings of, oh, you can actually make money from staking. And in terms of you, you know, giving me pointers for MTTs and coaching and stuff as well, that, um, oh, you can improve guys' games as well and make them better and then they're going to win more and you can have this kind of business model going now. I think it's been, we've all, I think it's fair to say, retired from it. <laughs> now all three of us. Pretty much, yeah. 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 Um, but bit guys at stables like BitB or that have pushed that on to a ridiculous level now and their coaching setups are huge these like 200 people skype calls and seminars and stuff multi times a week but yeah we were doing a similar concept five six years ago yeah i think we were like um, the mom and pop store version of what these <laughs> conglomerates these walmarts yeah. have taken over now yeah. yeah we were much smaller and much less organized i think much more chaotic yeah yeah but my memories of it are very positive like i enjoyed it i enjoyed doing coaching and getting coaching not being funny like we've staked kevin colleen at one point who i learned far more off very quickly than i could ever teach him and various other guys. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna name everyone because there's too many. I think we. You better name through. Newport or you get upset. Okay. Yeah. Nick. Nick Newport. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Around the time I started staking you, um, it was around the time actually that David moved back from the states too, which is why David was brought in to coach you. Um, so we, you all kind of got to know each other around that time. <clears throat> And you guys got on so well that you actually lived together for a while. Now, my my biggest memory of the early days of uh, like getting to know Lappin was when we were grinding online and we were talking to each other on Skype. And every so often, we'd just be chatting away, and then every so often Lappin would start screaming and shouting and swearing <laughs> because he'd, take, he'd lost a flip or something. Yeah. How did you find living with him, <laughs> dealing with that sort of thing? Uh, challenging. <laughs> How diplomatic. Uh, it was, I, for the most part, Dave's fine, but if Dave's on a couple months downswing or a bit of a couple of bad sessions in a row and he takes that <laughs> ace, is get, ace, is totally getting, ace is getting cracked fifth times in a row i do need to put my headphones on and pump the loudest heavy metal music i could to survive it <laughs> <laughs> but were you able to go in the same room uh sometimes yeah i might have snapped at him once or twice i remember uh, getting snapped at actually if it, more than once or twice yeah <laughs> so do you tune into his twitch now and feel all nostalgic when he goes on a rant <laughs> yeah yeah it is actually really comforting and the great thing is i could just switch it off at any point <laughs> click the mute button yeah. i myself click the mute button on his twitch a few times that, that that night he started eating biscuits and talking at the same time predator yeah <laughs> Well, you know, you, you eventually left me and moved to Malta, moving in with our good pal James Noonan, actually one of the guys we originally staked. Mm -hmm. um, James, yeah, he kind of stole, uh, well, I guess maybe the Maltese weather stole you from me. Um, but you moved here, I think, was it May in 2015? And then, obviously, Sounds heartbroken, I couldn't, I couldn't be without you for too long. I, I followed you out here in, I don't know, September of that year. Yeah, it was a few months, and then I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, he's back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, moved straight in with the two boys, and, uh, yeah, started swearing in their living room during yeah. their sessions. And I was like, I can't get away. It doesn't matter where I go in the world. <laughs> <laughs> You're coming up on 10 years playing poker for a living. Um, this is something I know Darren and I talk about an awful lot. Many people refer to that sort of class of 2007-2008 as being a bit of a golden age of Irish poker, a period where loads of the top players today sort of started out. Uh, does it worry you that with you know maybe a few exceptions, there haven't been so many players breaking out over the last few years? Yeah, it's really concerning. I, it's been discussed a lot on this show and everywhere else. The poker economy seems in not that great a shape right now. Uh, there are nowhere near as many new people joining the game. 
Um, but there's been some things. I think uh, the kind of marketing and advertising of poker needs to be looked at. It needs to be made fun. Again, um, I'm not smart enough or clever enough to give a point-by-point thing how to do that. But Is Kevin Hart going to make it fun? Kevin Hart could. I enjoy the signing of Kevin Hart. I think it's a lot better than Ronaldo or Neymar. Um, but there is various other points as well. Like Companies need to be giving back more, like the dismantling of right-back programs, obviously from Pokestars, but even, even other sites are guilty of it too. Other sites maybe don't give back enough back and stuff and give players incentives and goals and things. Because even something like Supernova was fun. It's yeah. like it's a goal it to aim no, to. People, like, people set a life goal. They wanted those five stars or whatever it was on their yeah, screen. They wanted people to respect them because they were supernova. Yeah, again, yeah. I don't want to pick on stars here. But um, yeah, the various things like that. Sites need to look at incentive programs and stuff like that. It seems to have gone again of get people into gam- other forms of gambling and use poker as a tool for that. Yeah, I think when we all got that email uh, a few weeks ago saying that our, our, our stars right back was probably being cut by 85%, of, I guess we're all really, really reassured now that now to know that that money's now being used to uh, make Kevin Hart a little bit richer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd prefer Kevin Hart than Ronaldo richer, but yeah. yeah. Um, well, look, I it would be remiss of me to have you on the show, particularly around this time of year, without mentioning the fact that you are the reigning Unibet uh, DSO champion. Uh, this time last year, approximately, you managed to get four ways uh, I think probably with the chip lead, or at least you know you had the chip lead somewhere around four or five left, and then did the honourable thing, chopped it up, flipped for the fucking trophy. What the fuck? Uh, I was last in chips, I'd have you know, and <laughs> I was presented with an okay deal. I think I got slightly more than ICM. I was actually significant. I was leader, I think, with six or seven left, but I dropped back hugely. I was quite adrift, actually, and I think I was on a terrible downswing at the time. So bagging. 14k I don't really remember to be honest at the time sounded pretty sweet to me yeah as I recall I played the tournament as well so I had a little piece of you so I do remember all this um, I think there was 20k up top so I guess when you when you chopped it four ways people got between what 12 and 15k it's or something something like that yeah yeah what any memories from that tournament um I remember it being really fun I remember um like a casino Malta where I'm guessing it's being held again this year is a great venue it's really fun good service good TDs good dealers everything was good um trying to remember specific hands or specific instances i don't remember too much i remember i, I actually sorry i nearly missed day two that was a funny one um oh, yeah. yeah um we there was a i was in i'm gonna say valetta in malta in the morning with my girlfriend i think we were buying furniture or something like that because we just moved apartments like a month before and there was a huge uh, car crash on the sole roll coming out of Valesa ahead of us. So there was lines upon lines of gridlock traffic and the tournament was starting back in an hour's time. Did you just like jump out of the car and start running? I, had to, I pretty much had to run to pass the crash to get a cab and I arrived at the venue like just on time. I also only had 10 bigs going into day two. So okay. it would have been properly disastrous. I've seen your run as well, so I can only imagine. How <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, well, look, Dara, of course, we wish uh, to replace you every single day. I do a news piece with, with Ian. I wish you were back. Um, oh, maybe we you. will find a way to wedge you Please. back into the show this season or next season, at the very least, have you on for maybe a strategy section with Dara. We'd love to do that. Leave Ian alone. He tries a <laughs> <laughs> uh, ringing endorsement for Ian there <laughs> but look seriously Dara thank you so much for popping by oh you're welcome thank you it's time for Ian Simpson with the news hello everybody welcome to the news this week we're recording from Malta we're here for the Deep Stack Open that starts this weekend that should be awesome are you looking forward to it I am looking forward to it I can't wait actually yeah excellent stuff all right, on with the news. Uh, obviously, the World Series of Poker final table is very newsworthy. We had three nights of drama with it, but it was Scott Bloomstein who emerged triumphant eventually. He won $8.1 million and the bracelet. He managed to beat Dan Ott heads up. Ultimately, it was a deuce on the river for Scott Bloomstein when his ace-deuce outdrew Dan's ace-eight. Third place went to Frenchman Benjamin Pollock, and fourth eventually went to our hero, Britain's John Hesp. Uh, Janos Jeszek emerged victorious in the Megastack Munster. This was in Clonmel in County Tipperary. Uh, you may remember that this was run by this season's guest, Nick O'Hara. Janos took down a final table that included Irish poker legend Mick McCluskey, winning 8k for a 170 buck buy-in. Not bad at all. 
Meanwhile, in Manchester, the MPN and £30,000 was won by Tim Chung, who took down a very tough field, including uh, Kieran Taig, who finished third. Uh, he's the brother of Irish high-stakes reg Daniel Tighe, who narrowly missed out on final tabling that himself. How was uh, how was uh, the MPN for you, Mr. Lavin? Oh yeah, I hear I hear you did great. Yeah, no two, uh, two th- caches. Uh, no, no, just not not quite two caches. No, they they paid thirty six in the main, and I uh-huh. paid thirty seventh. Okay. They paid. That's uh, close. Yeah, they paid six in the the three hundred side, and I came seventh. That's brilliant. So that's, that's... A, a pair of direct bubbles. Yeah, the, um, the worst place to bust. Yeah. Anyway, the World Series, as you mentioned, it, it was an idiot enough final table. Not the highest quality poker, if I'm honest, uh, but still so enjoyable to watch. Uh, a star is certainly born with people's champion John Hesp ultimately taking fourth for two and a half million quid. Key hand for him, I guess that uh, that hand at the end of day eight, the first of the three final days. When you ran the ace ten and aces on ace xx ten, uh, and I know that Kotdarazai actually, and he wants to have a look at that one next week. So expect that in the strategy section. Uh, on the Irish front, delighted for Yanis, Mick, Dynamics, McCluskey, and Kieran, of course, great results from the three boys. Uh, and as you mentioned, that we're here in Malta. Uh, I know tournament organizer for the DSO Alex Henry has put a ton of work into what I'm guessing will be a phenomenal stop. So. Hopefully next week might be reporting on an ambassador victory. That here. is the plan. That would be that good. Plan. Who do you think is the most likely to win out of out of the ambassadors? Definitely Dara. Yeah. Yeah. And you and you and you definitely. Although maybe you're the most likely to win and the most likely to bust first. It, it is much better busting first than bubbling, by the way. Yes. Yeah. Just just for, in terms of your hourly rate. Yeah. You know. Yeah, the hourly rate of both isn't great. But, what was your hourly rate in Manchester? Uh, I I definitely put in about twenty <laughs> something hours on the table and how much for did you absolutely win? nothing. No, yeah. nothing. Nothing. Yeah, less than nothing actually. <laughs> yeah, because I had to actually sit around with Manchester people grumbling and being miserable all day. We're only getting one side of this, and we know how salty Lappin is, so we're, we're not we're not going to we're not going to believe all that. People of Manchester, be less grumpy. I know you live in Manchester, and that's everyone's the reason you're grumpy, grumpy around you. It's not Manchester; it's you. Okay. Well, on that note, thank you for the news, Ian. This week, it's been a pleasure as always. As always. Later, guys. <laughs> For this week's strategy piece, um, I managed to get rid of David and got a considerable upgrade in terms of poker expertise to dive a burn, fresh from catching <laughs> the uh, World Series main event. Um, and the most talked about hand definitely of the World Series this year was a massive hand between Vanessa Selbst and Gail Bowman very early on day one. Um, I think Vanessa was actually one of the first people out of the tournament as a result of this hand. And... It's been watched uh, a lot on YouTube, so I'm sure most of you are familiar with the details. But for those who are not familiar with the details, basically it starts with Vanessa opening pocket aces um, in early position. Uh, Gail calls with pocket sevens. And the one of the blinds, Noah Schwartz, I think, comes along as well with jack eight off. The flop comes all clubs with an ace and a seven. So it's basically a set-over-set situation. Vanessa bets and... Gail just calls, then the and Noah folds. Um, the turn is another seven, so now Gail has quads. Vanessa checks. Gail bets. Vanessa raises, and Gail just calls. And then the river is essentially a brick, and Vanessa overbets the pot. She bets more than the pot, and Gail quickly shoves. Um, and Vanessa goes into the tank and eventually calls off and finds out the bad news that it's a, it's a top house against quad situation. So first of all, dive it. there was a lot of discussion on this afterwards on Twitter um, with some people suggesting that maybe Vanessa should have folded the river. Um, and then actually the discussion got, got a bit heated where some people seemed to think it was the, 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 there was sort of gender bias to it and that it was guys suggesting maybe that Vanessa should have should have folded um, so I'm glad I'm glad I'm glad I've got you on to um, to, to give this out that we don't get accused of sexism what's your view on the hand particularly the river well first of all hi guys thanks for having me on board um yeah, it's interesting. I think for me, the most interesting point is actually the terrain as well. Uh, the fact that Vanessa took this line of check raising. Well, I mean, it's not usual. It's not standard. Um, I was thinking about it yesterday, and I was thinking, like, by check raising, she really falls out, like, most of the bottom range and drawing hands, like, even a flush sometimes, made flush, I'm thinking. Um, so you're basically by check raising you left the full houses and quads and when you get shoved on the river uh, 
I, I seriously don't think there is anything else left, just a7 and quads, but I think even a7 is probably not shoving on you, considering how the hand's been played on the turn. So um, I was interested in watching the interview with Gail afterwards, and she said that she should she wouldn't shove a7 as well on the river. So basically, the hand all bluffs when she shot. Yeah, when this when this hand was discussed on Twitter, uh, a, lo a lot of really good players, including uh, Neil Farrell, suggested that um, Vanessa has to call the river because their argument was there are basically only two two, two, two hands and they both only have one combination. Uh, pocket sevens, obviously the two remaining sevens make quads and there's only one possible A7 suited, uh, which, which could get to the river this way, A7 of hearts specifically. Um, and getting four to one on the call roughly uh, which is what Vanessa gets when when she gets shoved on. The the, the feeling was that this means she has to call since it's 50-50 between uh, aces and ace seven suited. Now, I personally don't agree that it's 50-50 because I think sevens definitely uh, plays this way, but it's not at all sure that ace seven suited plays this way. There's a couple of points in the hand where it could have been played differently. Um, one point is obviously preflop. I played quite a bit with Gail. She's actually very solid pre-antis, and she's particularly careful. Yeah, I agree players. as well. Yeah. From what I've seen online, watching pre-recorded videos and like poker sessions, I think she's very solid. And that's why I don't really think that she's actually shoving a seven on the river. And she even admitted that. So. Yeah. So I think th there's actually a good chance, first of all, that she might just fold a seven suited preflop when Vanessa opens in early position and not, not wanting to get involved with a really good player with a hand that doesn't flop that well. Like a seven suited is significantly worse than hands like a ten suited or even a five suited, uh, which are more. Yeah, because position. Vanessa opened with the G, that's another interesting point. Yeah. So Vanessa's opening from early position. So even though she's she's pretty loose, um, her her under the gun range is tighter. Then I think the other mm -hmm. point where the hand could play differently on is is on the river, uh, like you. Uh, said in the interview afterwards she said I think she said at the time she told um, Vanessa that she would have shoved A7 suited because she yeah. obviously wants to sympathise with Vanessa and make her feel a bit better but actually when she thought about it afterwards she she, she wouldn't have shoved so that's the first point. Well. The second thing is e even if she did decide to shove she would have to think about it and if you if, if you review the hand she actually shoves very quickly on the river once uh, vanessa puts in the overbet she puts no yeah real i think like, 10 like literally like between five and ten seconds yeah and that's kind of a timing tell like when people shove quickly it's usually one of two things it's either a bluff and they've just decided before that they're bluffing and they don't have to think about it or else it's the nuts uh, which they also don't have to think about which they, they can shove so we are back to 50 50 again yeah <laughs> but when you have a yeah but th the thing is i don't think she has any bluffs in this but i can't i can't think of any hand she might bluff I, I mean i guess you could make some argument that if she had a king of clubs so the not flush blocker she might but to be honest early on in the main event i don't think she's she's, she's ever bluffing in this no, def definitely there are no bluffs that, that's that's my feeling about there are no bluffs because on the turn what hand she's calling the raise with yeah so I think I think when we put it all together, first of all, the fact that a seven suited might have folded pre flop. So 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 now it's not like it's 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 one or the other. It's like a hundred percent can be pocket sevens, and it's some percentage less than a hundred percent that it could be a seven suited. And then when we think about the way that the river was played, where Gail shoved very quickly, I think she'll always do that with pocket sevens because she knows she has the nuts and she doesn't have to think about it. But if she has a seven suited, even if she does shove, and she said afterwards that she wouldn't have she would actually have to think about it. Um, uh, yeah, so. I agree. She would totally think more about it. Yeah. It's not It's not a snapshot at the stage of the tournament, considering the chip stacks. And yeah. there's so much strength in the hand throughout. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, uh, Vanessa has shown massive strength throughout the entire hand. Think about it. She's she's raised pre-flop, she's bet the flop, she's check-raised the turn, and then she's over-bet the river. So it'd be a pretty insane spot to bluff. The final point I'd make is that, like, in a tournament like the main event, your last 16 or, or 17,000 chips, whatever Vanessa had left, are far more valuable to you than any other chips. She actually had 20,000 left. She had 20, so she bet 16,000 into 14,000 pot, and she had 20,000 behind. Yeah. For me, which is another interesting point, like her bet sizing on the river, she bets 16,000 into 14,000, and then she still gets shoved on. Yeah. Yeah, so Gail has also shown massive strength uh, in the hand, uh, and, yeah. you, and, and you kind of have to think it's the nuts at that stage. Um, and if What do you think about her bet sizing? For me, it was very interesting, because I, I think she could have bet 
smaller and then just get away. Because I think once she bets like over the pot, she feels like she's committed and getting a good price. Like you said, you know, like 50 50 on the call. But if she bets smaller and she shoves, yeah, then I think she. Yeah, I agree. I think the reason why she does she does overbet is because um, she has a very aggro image, and people sometimes will assume when she overbets that it's it's basically her trying to to bully her way to a pot with something like the king of, uh, king of clubs, which would be the you know if she had something like king queen, which is the king of clubs, she'd be blocking the nut flush. It would be a decent hand for her to bluff. Yeah. Um, so I think she yeah. tried, she tried to make it look like a bluff. Um, w w with the bet sizing, but yeah, I agree with you that if she had bet smaller and then Gail had shoved, uh, she could definitely have folded because th th then she's getting a much worse price, obviously. Also, if she bet smaller, Gail might not even shove, just like click back, you know, so she can just call and still be in the tournament. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that, that's another good point. She, I think, I think, like you said, she felt like she'd committed herself, um, but I don't think she yeah. actually had because I think if she had, if she, if she stood back for five or six minutes and thought about it, she said in game, well, uh, you could have a seven of hearts, so I have to call. But I think if she'd stepped back, she 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 could have thought, well, okay, maybe it's possible you've a seven of hearts, but there's a lot of clues as to why it's not a seven of hearts. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it is correct decision to fall, but at the same time, I. You know, probably more majority of the place we have never got away from that hand. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Diva. Thanks for taking a break from your busy uh, wine tasting schedule. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for keeping me on the poker track. Yeah. <laughs> and my mind is still thinking poker, which is good. Cool. And uh, enjoy the rest of your trip. Thank you. I'm delighted to welcome to the show a two-time Pocket Fives number one online player, the man who just one week ago went back to back to back with a pair of Aria 25k high roller wins and a victory in the Bellagio Cup for a total of 1.25 million. Patrick Leonard, thank you for joining us. How's it going? Back in London now. Uh, weather's pretty terrible, but uh, it's kind of nice to be back from Vegas after being there for so long. So uh, thanks for having me here, and uh, I'm a pretty big fan of the show. I've listened to most of the recent episodes, and... Uh, um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of podcasts in general, so poker and uh, podcast is a pretty good combination for me. Great stuff. Well, first of all, that online number one moniker, while I don't doubt for a second that you deserve to reach that position, I have always been a little bit skeptical about the Pocket Fives formula, which rewards positive results, doesn't really penalise losses. I remember pointing out to Dara once that over half the Irish top 20 were losing over a 12-month period. How much stock did you put in that achievement when you did it back in August and then November 2014? When I was growing up, like, I used to be a very big fanboy when I was, like, 16 to, like, 19. I used to just, I was on poker forums, like, all day, every day. I was in, like, all the rankings. I was watching, like, replays on YouTube. Like, I was a very big fanboy. And I used to base things off, like, who was in the top 10 on, like, Pocket Fives or OPR. Or I think it was Codplayer had, like, a big ranking at that time. I started playing tournaments kind of accidentally in 2014, I guess. So I saw myself as being, like, number... 15 in the UK pretty quickly just from having these quick results um, which kind of felt stupid to me straight away I kind of got the alarm bells what how can I be like 15th in the UK after everyone who played like 25 tournaments or whatever um, but I was like maybe 200th in the world and 15th in the UK and it kind of was an attractive proposition for me to to every every day I played tournaments I would get points and my points would be new points obviously because I was new to the system so every day I saw myself like climbing up the ranking, which was pretty, it felt pretty nice at the time. Um, my friends said to me that, oh, tournaments are really tough. And I was playing them and I really found them pretty easily. Um, I came from a cash game background, but my cash game kind of style was not very good. Like I wouldn't be a winner today in cash games. I played very like exploitative. Like I was big on like game flow and all that stuff, which is kind of irrelevant in cash games. But Fortunately for me, it meant the transition to tournaments was pretty easy because I wasn't really caring about balance. I was caring more about just like winning every pot. Um, so my friend said to me, look, uh, you're just running hotter than the sun. They were like really tilted. That I was running really well. And I was saying to them, no, no, tournaments are just super easy. So they said, okay, how about we make a bet that you can be top 10 in the world on pocket fives? And I was like, okay, let's make it that I can be number one in the world on pocket fives. So we did this, I started playing like every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, not taking any days off. And it kind of hurt my social life a lot for like one year. But I had this huge goal of just being uh, number one in the world on Pocket Fives. And once I got there to number one on Pocket Fives, it was fine. Like I, I knew the ranking system was a bit of a joke. Like I knew the players who were in the top 10 weren't very good players. They weren't really winning. But it kind of gave me the motivation to 
um, to grind every day. If I didn't have this kind of side bet or if I didn't have the ranking system, then it's very unlikely I would have played more than like twice a week. Maybe I would have even given up on tournaments. So for me, ranking systems and prop bets and cross books, they sound very immature to like a lot of people. Like if you hear like a cash game guy or maybe someone who's been playing poker like for like 15 years, if you hear them, if you hear like young kids talking about cross books or side bets or ranking systems, I think it can sound like immature or arrogant that you chase these things. But for me, it's kind of like a motivational tool that I use to kind of help me play play volume. Yeah, I completely agree with that. One, thing, one motivator I've always used is uh, the Pocket 5 Triple Crown thing. Whenever I win one, it basically it's, it's an excuse to really chase hard for the rest of the week. Um, you won a hugely successful stable, BITB. In 2016, you did an interview with Poker News in which you said it was made up of eight top coaches and 60-plus hungry grinders. Has it grown or shrunk since then? Um, it's grown. We now have around about 15 coaches and 80 players i guess maybe a little bit more kind of changes every day taking people on people leaving whatever else um yeah when i started in like at the start it was just me and two friends who had no kind of business idea at all we, we knew we were good at poker and we knew we could teach people to win at like ten dollar to like fifty dollar tournaments but from a business point of view we had no clue um i was pretty good friends of fido Holtz, who was uh climbing up the MTT ladder. He just won a Dubby Coop. He was, people were starting to say he was the best in the world. And I asked him if he wanted to get involved and we sold him like 25% of the company. He came involved and he basically changed everything upside down. Like we went from just being like a two, a three man team who just staked these guys and helped them out a little bit to, to work in like a complete startup, like a startup you'd see in like San Francisco or you'd see like, like anywhere, like really treating it like a business hiring accountants lawyers whatever else Fido was really the guy who helped us get from two coaches to eight coaches um i think once you get to there it's kind of easy more people want to join you and stuff but the development of the stable i'd put like very hard down to to Fido's influence that's incredible um you mentioned also uh, i think in that same interview that you have often lent on the brain trust of that group particularly uh elmerick's european and graph tech all three of the game's top players obviously uh, can you give us a sense what a session with those guys looks like uh, a session generally is either a theory session, so a session used on peer solver or with like a presentation style, implement uh, pr- presenting a theory, introducing a, f- a theory, and then kind of explaining what it is, the strengths, the weaknesses behind it, how to deviate from it. Um, we sometimes just do very simple hand history reviews. So yesterday, uh, on Sunday, one of our horses won the Sunday Million. So yesterday for three hours, I just went through the whole tournament, no solvers, no tools, just how I thought every single spot, what sizes I would use, how I would exploit the population, etc. And then sometimes we will do like an actual hand history review. So a coach will select maybe six to eight hands and go through each of them in very big detail. And the last thing we do is kind of a live replay. So we will record a final table or we go to YouTube on like the recoup final table and then we will pause every hand with whole cards up and speculate how we think each player played. And when it's close, we'll then bring a solver out and try to find out what the actual um, result is. And sorry, there's one last one where I will stream a whole session. So last night, after I finished the hand history review, I streamed my whole, whole Tuesday session. So all the guys took the day off, all the night off. And they watched me play like six to eight tables of high stakes and me talking about what I'm doing in every hand. They're asking me questions, and uh, fortunately, I won uh, the party 500, which was nice because they got to see all the phases of the tournament playing from the start, playing mm-hmm. in the middle, talking about how to deal, if you should deal, uh, ICM, exploitating things, etc. So um, there's five or six different ways where we do. It's not like there's just one set way of coaching. And I think it's good to mix it up each time to make it like kind of interesting for the guys rather than just boring hand history reviews every single time you know yeah look I, I'm, I'm in awe of your preparation and your and your knowledge of all this stuff but uh, I, I do actually remember you saying something a few years ago that I also thought was pretty cool uh, you criticised the dogmatic nature of a lot of the elite pros who just kind of categorically say like oh that play is bad uh, I think you said it had often been the case that a play that seemed bad uh, actually became revolutionary later on in the game without giving too much away can you give us an example uh of something that you regard uh, as sort of revolutionary today that many see as as bad within this poker paradigm. Yeah, I mean, I remember, um, I remember a hand I played in Vegas. It was like 
maybe my second time I was in Vegas and I raised uh, from the button and the big blind was an older guy. Like he was a full, I think it was maybe someone like, um, like Jeff Lissandro, someone like that, like Eric Lindgren, one of these like kind of live full tilt poker regs. And I raised the button and he defended the big blind and the flop came down. I think it was eight, five, two. And I see bet very small, like I knew I was supposed to. And he check raised the flop. And it felt very weird to me that he check raised the flop here. Like he shouldn't really be, he shouldn't really have too many hands where he'd want to check raise. Like an eight's just going to call. And uh, maybe he has a draw. Like there's a lot of draws out there, like six, seven, nine, seven, nine, six, five, three, all of these kind of hands. So he check raised the flop and I called with Ace King. Uh, the turn was a two. So it was like eight, five, two, two. And he bet again, two's a very good card for me. It makes it less chance that he has pocket twos, less chance he has a hand like eight, two or five, two suited, these kind of hands. So he, yeah. bet, he bet again and I called and the river was a king and he shoved all in and I called all the missed draws with that. I feels like I have the nuts now. And he had, um, he had something like, I think it was 10, two suited or Jack two suited. Like one of these, he had bottom pair, which turned trips. And I remember writing like a blog post, which is probably in hindsight, super arrogant about how can this guy like play poker for 20 years and then check raise the flop, trying to find out where he was at. And <laughs> I kind of had no idea how to play poker at the time. All I did was listen to like Deuces Crack videos and run it once, not run it once, like card runners videos. And all of these kind of pros like A Jones and these guys, they used to say the same thing. Like live players are terrible. All they do is like raise to find out where they're at. It's so stupid. You should never raise to find out where you're at. And then, like, fast forward, like, four years later to the Bellagio Cup, uh, where I won, like, one week ago, there was actually a hand where someone raised, and I had bottom pair. It was, the board was something like maybe 9-5-2, and I had, like, jack-2 or king-2 or queen-2, and I actually check-raised on the flop with my bottom pair to, quotations, find out where I'm at. I actually turned the two again, like like he had done... <laughs> and then I went, I went a huge pot against aces and the guy was really, really tilted. And I remember thinking that was like, like four years ago. In fact, I think he's taken to uh, to a blog now to angrily write about it. Probably, yeah. But the, the, the thing, <laughs> thing is with the solvers actually say that uh, like check raising bottom pair to deny equity is actually pretty good because let's say I have a hand like uh, jack 10 and the board is 9-5-2. I bet like one big blind on the flop. Usually I'm going to check a lot on turns and just like see a river for free. So I bet one big blind and get to see free streets. On the flop, if you raise your bottom pair, you get a lot of hands which have like 30 to 40% equity or 20% equity to just instantly fold the flop, which is pretty good for you. And people can still call you with worse hands like straight draws or ace king or ace queen. And if you do turn like a deceptive two pair, you can also win like a pretty big pot against a good hand. Or maybe you can bluff when it runs out like four to a straight or whatever else. So uh, solvers actually suggest like raising to protect your equity which is basically the same thing as finding out where you're at and kind of i i kind of look back uh, i think last time i spoke to you and kind of cringed a little bit i used to be this guy who just listened to videos and listened to taylor cabe your a jones telling me that uh things were black and white where i think the live guys like jeff lissandro or eric lingren or whoever else they sit there in bobby's room or in bellagio and they just have, have so many time in between hands to think about hands, like what makes logical sense. And poker to me, sure. the best poker players in the world are not the, the cleverest guys. Like Fido Holtz is obviously super smart, but the reason why he's successful, uh, I know, is because he's logical rather than being like a mathematical genius. You know, like he knows like what kind of makes sense and how to exploit and how people are playing. So how the population play, how he should play against that. And I think that's exactly how to win in poker rather than listen to what Phil Galfon says or what someone run it once says. I think it's better to sit there uh, almost with like a pen and paper and to work out like how are people playing? How should I play against that, you know? And uh, I'm a big fan of like logical approach rather than necessarily like GTO approach, you know? Uh, Unibet ban all third party software and I know party poker restricts these to some of these tools. I know you're in favor of these restrictions, um, but have often singled out HUDs as not being a, a quote, scary a tool giving out enormous amounts of information. If you're speaking to a recreational player who is concerned about being exploited, what would you say to them about HUDs to put their mind at ease? Yeah, I think probably, I think Trevorrow is a pretty good example. Um, I know so many recreational guys use this tool Trevorrow, which is basically a HUD, um, which shows you like a bunch of numbers like preflop and free bet and C bet and all this kind of stats. If they use this HUD, uh, they'll probably realize it, it, it doesn't make much sense. Like, 
when they're playing in the bounty builder 11 or whatever and they're playing against a guy they have 20 hands on they they would look at their hood and it'll tell them absolutely nothing um for anyone who's scared about using the hood i would say just download poker tracker download holder manager they all have 30 day free trials use it for like one session and you will see that it's absolutely nothing it doesn't help you at all the only way that poker tracker the, the most useful way to use poker tracker or in any kind of HUD tool is actually for post-game reflection. So I use Poker Tracker a lot, but it's usually to like review sessions or to break down like you can see like how much money you're making with Queen Five Offsuit when someone raises under the gun and you call, and you can compare it to when you fold or when you free bet, stuff like this. Like that's how to use these kind of tools. And this doesn't like target recreational guys. Like there's nothing telling me like press X button or Y button or this guy has this hand at this point. Um Recreational guys in particular are very unpredictable. Regular players are quite predictable, but amateur players are usually quite unpredictable. They'll play hands in ways they shouldn't do. Like, let's take John Hest, for example. If we used a hood on him in the WSP main event, like, it wouldn't give me too much information. Like, obviously, he's playing too many hands. I can see that. But sometimes he's leading the flop with middle pair. Sometimes he's leading with nothing. Sometimes he's free-betting with aces. Sometimes he's free-betting with eight free offsuit. You know, like, the hoods don't give you like concrete information you know especially on amateur players yeah that's very interesting yeah uh david mentioned there your three huge results in vegas recently um i think before that for most of the series you you, you were having a pretty rough series and i know from personal experience that vegas can be a very rough place when <laughs> when you're when it's not going to plan what's your approach to vegas in terms of like keeping your head straight when um you know things are not going the way you want them to yeah, I'm a pretty boring guy in general with like, um, like I don't go clubbing, I don't take drugs, I don't smoke, I don't drink so much. Like I, 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 I absolutely hate hangovers. I used to run like club nights in the UK and I used to drink every night for like a few years. But now like hangovers are just the worst thing in the world. So I never drink more than one, one or two beers, fortunately. Uh, Vegas does kind of get to me a little bit because... Afterwards, when I bust tournaments, I want the next day to just appear straight away. It's like I usually have like 12, 15, 20 hours just doing nothing waiting for the next tournament, which can be very kind of frustrating because I'm there to play poker. Uh, I choose to live in Europe rather than America, and Europe's weather is absolutely shit until until summer. Then I sacrifice the whole summer to kind of go to Vegas, and I, I lose all the good months away from my family and my dogs and my friends in Europe. So going to Vegas is like a very big commitment for me, so... When I do kind of run bad, it does get to me more than it probably should do. Uh, I hadn't cashed a tournament, and after like three weeks or two weeks, I was on the pure bubble of the millionaire maker, and I got in aces against Ace King for like very big pot, and the flop was like ten to five or some some rainbow, and he backed all the straight, and I kind of took it okay, and then two guys over my head kind of high fived each other and were like, "Yes, we're in the money." <laughs> And then the floor was like, okay, everyone were in the money and everyone was clapping and going crazy. And uh, obviously the millionaire makers are torment. A lot of people take a shot and whatever. So I was like fine with it. But uh, then afterwards I went home or to my hotel room. I was like, fuck this. Like I wish I was in Europe with my friends. They were at festivals and stuff. <laughs> so uh, I just decided to go back for a week or so. I think when you do get to that point where you're really tilted, uh, not to a point where you're gambling or drinking or doing whatever, but just to a point where you're kind of unhappy and uh not depressed like i've used the word depressed about poker a lot before and people have kind of had a go at me but there is times in poker where you just like you go back to your hotel room for 10 hours and you're kind of like sad that the day's over you know and you wish you sure. were some and you wish you were somewhere else and when you're in that kind of lonely place or unhappy place i think it's good to just kind of go somewhere where it makes you happy you know like uh if you're like an alien like looking out into the, into into the uh world uh, and you see a guy in his hotel room who's unhappy and wishes you somewhere else, and he has the ability to go somewhere else, and he decides not to go there, that sounds almost like insanity, you know, if you were someone looking in. So for, for me, if I do get into that lonely or depressed or sad place, I think it's good to just go somewhere where it makes me happy, whether that be New York for a weekend, whether that be, you know, to Mexico to play online for a weekend, or whether that be go back to England for a week or two weeks and recharge the batteries. I think it's important to kind of take those... Uh, that time off, I think. So this year I came back to England for two weeks and was with my dogs every day, walks, whatever else, with my girlfriend. So um, for me, that's an important thing thing to do when I get to that kind of unhappy place, I guess. Well, that's very sensible advice, obviously. And it was a recipe that worked for you because uh, before you go, it would certainly be remiss of me not to kind of get into the weeds of your incredible back-to-back -back 
to back 400k scores. Uh, now, I know you're too variance conscious to get carried away with what all of that means, but the bankroll boost must be giving you a few more options. Are you eyeing up some high rollers, perhaps one of those 100k super high rollers in the near future? What are your What are your plans for the next few months? Uh, unfortunately, I'm too sensible to uh, take all my action in the really big tournaments like the 25k's. Uh, I always sell action to the same the same guy as a German consortium, uh, like a hedge fund they have, which is actually a very good idea, I think. Um, yeah. And I usually take around about like 8 to 10Ks worth of action in all the tournaments. So unfortunately, in that like 800Ks worth of action, I only got like, oh, quotation, only got like 400K or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. Um, <laughs> but in general, I, I like the high rollers in, a lot. Um, the best thing for me is actually meeting the recreational players when I play the high rollers. Not from like a profitable point of view, but the kind of recreationals you meet when you play a 1500 or a 1k, a lot of the time they can be grumpy or they can kind of be kind of, I don't know, just sometimes not the nicest people. But a lot of the time in these uh, high rollers, you're meeting like some of the most successful businessmen in America, you know, like really clever guys who want to speak about very good things or interesting things or they ask you, they, they're interested on in your opinions on life and then they kind of critique your opinions on life or uh, sometimes you get job offers working for hedge funds or whatever else. So I think playing these high rollers, I don't really play them for the money, so to say. Like, I don't play because I don't say I'm going to go to Vegas next week and play four twenty-five games and make $7,500 and $128 hourly or something. I see it more as like it's very, very fun to do. I play against the best players in the world and I get to meet some of the smartest kind of businessmen in the world or in America, which I think is a very good thing. So I'm very motivated to continue playing these tournaments. I'm not going to start just taking like 100% of my action in all these massive tournaments. I'm kind of content just doing what I was doing before. I was in a pretty good place. and uh... Absolutely. Well, it sounds like an expensive enough premium just for a bit of networking at the high end. But, uh, you know, I'll certainly bear that advice in mind in the future. Um Patrick, sincerely, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a real treat to, to to talk poker with you. I know this is probably a a, a deeper, more poker oriented, but I know there's a big audience out there uh, who are dying to listen to this. So thank you very much for for bringing that to us this week. Yeah, thanks for having me and uh, being patient too. Appreciate it. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Dara. Playing us out this week is a Derry musician whose much-lauded debut album for Every Silence lies somewhere between classic minimalism and avant-garde electronica. Last year it was named Album of the Week on BBC Radio 1. This is Ryan Vale. This is Wounds.
time through which we are now passing is of exceptional character, and the present strike is of a nature quite unlike the many others which have preceded it. strike of this character. It is a direct challenge to a lawfully constituted authority and inflicts, without adequate reason, immense discomfort and injury on millions of our fellow countrymen. Diva and pads. I know we promised you Mormon this week and last week, but what poker player doesn't love a good slow roll? Next week we talk to a professional poker player who lives in and twitches from his van, Carlos Welsh, and who knows we might just have Mormon for you. Until then, from Dara, Ian, and myself, good night and good luck. Yeah.